And if you have your Bibles this morning, and I trust that you do, if you can open with me to the letter of 1 John, 1 John chapter 2 is where we're going to start in verse 28. And welcome to week 5 of our Unshakable series where we are walking through this letter or book or however you want to call it, the, the letter of 1 John. And my goal, as I've said it from the beginning in this series, is to help all of us in this room who are born of God to know that we are children of God, to know that beyond a shadow of a doubt, um, and thus walk in an unshakable confidence and a boldness that you can say, I am a child of God to yourself. You can say it confidently to, to God. You can say it to others. The goal of this series is that when somebody asks you, are you a Christian, that you won't answer, well, I hope so, I, I think so, maybe, that you will be able to say, no, I, yes, I am a child of God without any doubt whatsoever. I want this series from the Word, by the Spirit, to be an instrument of giving us assurance of salvation, an assurance that we need. That's the aim and that's the goal. And as we kind of are about to step into that again, let me just give Again, a, a little background. So the, the Apostle John is writing this letter to address some false teachers who have come into the church teaching um, different things, two main things really, but teaching different false truths. And that's we got to be careful, even in the church, don't just believe everything that you hear. Take time. That's why God has given us this. So we can take what we hear, like the Bereans did in the book of Acts, even Paul taught them, and the Bereans went, and they said they made sure they lined it up with the Word of God to make sure what Paul was telling them was true. I encourage you to do the same. Um, find out, make sure that what we're being taught is from the Word of God. So two, basically two main things that were going on in, in the church. False teachers were claiming that Jesus had never come in the flesh, that he didn't have a physical body. They were basically denying the humanity of Christ. And that's why John begins his letter by saying, no, we saw him, we touched him, we heard him. Um, we're witnesses to the fact that he came in the flesh. And then these false teachers um, were saying that even if you do believe in Christ, even if you claim to be a Christian, it doesn't mean that it has to change anything about your life. So they were saying just because you claim to be a Christian doesn't mean your life has to change on a day-to-day -day basis at all. So John is writing this letter addressing these and, of course, other claims. And all throughout this letter, John is talking about who Jesus is, writing about how Jesus changes a person, that we will be changed by him. And what John does in this section that we are about to um, take on today is that he develops three arguments. So he develops three arguments, and he actually repeats each argument twice. And it centers around why Jesus came, what faith in Christ makes us, and the hope that Christ is coming again. So he kind of addresses those three things and actually repeats them twice. So the, the section we're about to dive into centers around the truth that we, anyone in this room who have placed our faith in Christ, we're not just saved from our sin, but we are actually brought into the family of God. So we're not just saved from our sin. We're not just forgiven. We have literally become sons and daughters of the Most 
high God. Meaning if you're a Christian, you have trusted Jesus as Savior, meaning one who died in your place. You've trusted him as Lord, one who rules over you. You have been justified by God, meaning that the holy judge of the universe looks at you. And although he could say guilty because we are, instead because of our faith in Jesus, he says you are not guilty. This is a legal description, and it would have been extraordinary enough for God just to simply redeem us. If God just just forgave us and that's all he did, that would be enough. But he doesn't stop there. God literally gets off the bench. He comes down to where we are. He lifts our face, and he declares that we are his children. He says, you are my son and you are my daughter. Just stop for a moment and think about the gravity of that. The Bible says without Christ, we're children of wrath. We're children of wrath. God's wrath is coming upon us, not because someone else um, brought it upon us, because we brought it upon ourselves. But because of Jesus, we now become not children of wrath. We become children of God. Think about the gravity of that reality, what that means for our lives. If we are Christians, then God has made us his children. J.I. Packer further, or furthers this thought when he says, or when he writes, he says, you sum up the whole New Testament teaching in a single phrase if you speak of it as the revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctly Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. So the Christian name for God is we call him our Father who art in heaven. And most of us in this room, chances are we've heard somebody somewhere, maybe even you have said this, well, everyone is a child of God. We're all children of God. And that statement, it rings flowery, it rings nice, it rings hopeful, but it's not true. It's not true. It doesn't matter how nice it sounds. If it's not true, it's a lie. And let me just say this. Indeed, it is true that God both created And God loves, in a most unfathomable way, everyone who has ever lived. So everyone who's ever lived, created by God, loved by God. It is true that God has woven every person who's ever lived and will ever live. He's woven them together in their mother's womb. He's numbered every hair on their heads. Isn't that right, Brother Steve? Every hair on that head, on that beautiful head, he, he numbered. But... Here's the thing. God the Father has only one begotten Son. So let me say that again. God the Father has only one begotten Son. The rest of us, in order to become children of God, get this, we must be adopted. We must be adopted in, by, and through the one who is the begotten Son, who is Jesus Christ our Lord. Those who are not adopted by God, hear this, are not children of God. Indeed, to become a child of God, we must ask God through faith in Jesus Christ to adopt us. And it's not just by believing in him. Did you know that the Bible says even the demons believe in him? And the demons go even further. It says the demons tremble. Most of us who say we believe in God, when was the last time you trembled? So demons believe more about God than some of us do. The reality, listen, it's not just enough to believe. Demons believe, they tremble, they're not saved. 
We must believe him and we must receive him. That's what John 1.12 says. It says, but to all who believed him and received him, Jesus Christ received him as who? As Savior and Lord. He gave the right to become children of God. Therefore, on that basis of people coming to Jesus on Jesus' terms, it is clear that not everyone is a child of God. Therefore, not everyone can approach God as Father. Everyone is a creation of God. God is the creator of all, but he is not the father of all. Therefore, we are not born into the family of God. We are born again into the family of God by the work of the Son of God, by the indwelling Spirit of God, by which we become sons and daughters of God. Let me make this statement. God has no grandchildren. God has no grandchildren. Now, some of you, your grandparents, now you're thinking, I just want to tell about my grandkids. And you're wishing for that moment right now, you're not going to get it. But God, God has no grandchildren. He has sons and he has daughters. That is the beautiful picture of our God. So what I want us to do now is I want us to turn to the word and dive into this portion of scripture. And I pray that we will leave here this morning either more confirmed in the truth that you can say, I know I am a child of God. Or maybe for the first time today, you can leave here saying, I am a child of God. So if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor God's word. And we're going to read 1 John 2, verse 28, all the way to chapter 3, verse 10. And just unpack these truths together. So it says this, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that. He appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let... No one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous and he or as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Let's pray together. Father, we come again to another tough passage in your word. Yet, Lord, we are not going to, in any circumstances whatsoever, apologize for your word. This is your word and you want us, God. You want us to know that we know that we know that we have eternal life. And when we begin to 
go off the, the path, Lord, you by your spirit, by your word, you by your grace, you want to bring us back. And Father, we pray today in this time together that you would speak to your people by your word, through your spirit. God, I pray for any in this room today that does not know you, that today would be the day of salvation. Today would be the day that they can say clearly, I am now a child of God. For others who are children of God yet, who are maybe in this moment in the, in the pig pen, running away from you, your Heavenly Father, may today be a day that they, by your Spirit, come to their senses. <coughs> and Lord, return to you as you are drawing them <coughs> back to you. Father, just finish this time in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. <coughs> Excuse me. So again, as believers, we, we talk and we teach a lot about sin, about repentance, about forgiveness, about justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, and all of those things are right, and they're good. We should speak about those things, yet part of what makes the good news so good and, and so graciously good is the doctrine of adoption. When God saves us, he doesn't only spare us from eternity in hell. He doesn't just spare us from his wrath that we deserve. No, he also brings us into his family. He adopts us as his children. The more we consider what adoption means, the greater our joy should be over what God has done for us. I am convinced, though, that we are sitting in a day and age where most people who claim the name of Christ has no idea what it means to be a child of God. In fact, they have no celebration for the fact that they're children of God. And then think about from an earthly standpoint, just an earthly standpoint of adoption, kind of a fictional standpoint, but, but just follow with me here. Superman, Snow White, Harry Potter, Luke Skywalker, Princess Leia, Peter Pan, all orphans, all of them Orphans, some of them, of course, adopted. Why do so many inspiring stories have orphans as their main character? And I think, in a weird way, they kind of tap into the innate feeling that we know exists and always exists in all of us that this world is not our home. This world is not our home. C.S. Lewis put it this way, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy... The only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. So if I find in myself that this world can't satisfy me, the only logical explanation is I was made for another world. That is why adoption is such a comforting um, doctrine. To be adopted is to realize that we were made for another world. We were made for another person. We were made for God. We were able to be restored to God, yet only through Jesus Christ. We are children of God, or you can be a child of God through what Jesus has done for you. Jesus came, and he is coming. So what I want to do this morning is I want us to unpack three truths related to the, the past and the future comings of our Savior. First truth is this. Jesus came to make us what we weren't. Jesus came to make us what we weren't. Look at chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. John says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called 
children of God. And so we are. And then verse 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now. Right now. John is amazed at the reality that we are children of God. He is shouting, See, look, behold, don't miss this amazing love that God has for us. Tim Keller says that when John the author says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, he is asking from what planet or what world does this kind of love come from? It's unlike anything we've ever seen, unlike anything we could ever compare it to. It's not from our world. It's not like any kind of thing or anything that human love could give. It's otherworldly. This kind of love is completely set apart. And this kind of love is, is the love that, as one version says, the Father has lavished upon us. He has poured it, graciously poured it upon us that we should be called children of God. I love this because in his letters, John frequently refers to Christians as children of God, whereas in Paul's letters, he refers to Christians as sons of God. Now, both are true, of course, but what is the difference? And here's the difference. Son is something of a legal term describing our relationship with God through Christ. Christians have been declared to be sons or daughters of God, and we have been adopted into his family legally. But John, of course, doesn't use the word or the term sons. He uses the term, um, this beautiful picture of children, that we are children of God. And what he means is this. He's speaking of birth origin, family relationship, and even he goes further. He speaks of family likeness and family characteristics. And I don't want to, we're about to touch this in just a second, but here's what I know. We, our, our family, um, three, a little over three years ago, were so blessed to welcome Malachi into our home. And we could not be more proud of and still, right now, because he's been with us three years, he was in India for four years, we can still blame India for the things that he does wrong. Eventually, there's going to come a time where he'll be with us longer than that, and we'll have to take full responsibility. But here's the beautiful thing. I love this as me as his father. He wants to be everywhere I am. Now, sometimes that's an amazing thing, and sometimes it's like, are you kidding me? <laughs> but like yesterday... Um, I walk outside and I hear Misty say, where are you going? And he said, I'm going to be with Daddy. And she said, why do you have your shirt off? He said, because Daddy has his shirt off. And so he, he walks outside and then later on he's taking a shower. I want to use Daddy's shampoo. I want to use Daddy's soap. And here's the point. As children of God, there will be a family likeness. There will be a family characteristic by which we begin to become more and more like our Heavenly Father. This is the picture of what um, John is saying. But so, so many times, brothers and sisters, we miss it. We view spiritual adoption like the musical Annie. We view ourselves as this cute, red-headed um, child who everyone is going to love because we can sing really good and we're really cute. And in order for us to get to Daddy Warbuck's house, um, we have to um, act really good. We have to have a trial basis. We have to overcome trials and, and tests. And we think that we're the cute ones and we can overcome. And as we overcome, God is going to welcome us into his family because why wouldn't he want us as cute as we are? The problem is that is not the biblical picture of adoption. In fact, the biblical picture of adoption is we aren't cute at all. We're not cute at all. In fact, we are all ugly ones who have been tormented by our sin. Brother Curtis, I know that hurts your pride a little bit. Because Brother Curtis every morning looks in the mirror and says, I'm a beautiful man. 
But we are, isn't that right, Miss Nancy? I know. I, I know he does that. But that is not the picture of what we are. J.I. Packer reminds us, that, get this, in the ancient world, the biblical world, adoption um, was a practice that was normally only confined to the childless well-to-do. But the subjects, as far as who they adopted, were not infants as it is today, but young adults who had proved themselves to be worthy of the family name. So they would only adopt older children who had made a name for themselves, proving themselves to be worthy of their family name. Brothers and sisters, that is not what God has done for us. God adopts us out of free love, not because of our character, not because of our track record, not because we're worthy to bear his name, because we are not, but for the very opposite um, reason. We are not fit for a place in God's family. None of us are. are. The, the idea of God exalting us as he would exalt his own son is ludicrous and wild, yet that is exactly what God has done for us. It is absolutely mind-blowing. God didn't make us his children because we were prettier than others. Divine adoption isn't concerned with our physical health. It's not concerned with our, our financial wealth. It's not concerned with our potential. It's not concerned with our past history. God loves the unlovable. God loves us. Please hear this. God loves you not because you're lovable. He loves you because he's loving. He loves you because he is love. Just think about that. What it means for you to be a child of God, for God to look at you and God to say something to you in this way, you are my child in, in whom I am well pleased. Dr. C.F.W. Um, Walther, a pastor who lived in the 1800s, wrote these words, every Christian may apply to himself or herself the declaration, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. As God's children, we not only have the privilege of participating in his mission to redeem and renew creation, but we also do so in the strength, the knowledge, and the all-powerful word of our Father's delight. Christian in this room today, I don't care what you've done this week, God delights in you. He loves you. He doesn't love you more when you've had better weeks than when you have a terrible week. He loves you a little less. No, God loves you. He couldn't love you any more than he does, and he doesn't, could never love you any less. You know, he couldn't love you when you do better because his love didn't start when we began to do good. His love um, remained on us while we were yet in our sins. Jesus came to make us what we weren't, and what we weren't was children of God. And yet he has made us his sons and his daughters. Secondly, the second truth is this. Jesus came to free us from what we were. So Jesus came to free us from what we were. If you look at verse 5 and 6, it says, You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Verse 8 says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So for us to truly stand in awe of what all of this means, we have to first see in the words of John Piper that there is something in all of us that needs to be destroyed. There's something in all of us that needs to be destroyed. And what that is, is sin. Every single one of us in this room, in this world, has been affected by sin. 
1 John 3, 4, it says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. All of us, that's who we were. We were practicing lawlessness. Now, that's not a term that we use often, but what John is saying is that sin that you commit and that I commit is not mostly an accidental failure against God, but is an absolute act of rebellion against God. Meaning most sin that we, that, that we give into, that, that we partake in, isn't just, oops, slipped there, oops, messed up there. No, in that moment we are saying, God, I know what you said, but I really don't care. God, I know your word says this, but I really don't care. God, I know you claim your law says this, but your law doesn't apply to me right now. And that's what sin is. It's an act of cosmic treason by which we want to say we believe in God, but yet we want to act in a way by which we say, but in this moment, I'm God. And this is what happens when every single one of us sin. We, we are engaging in rebellious violation of the law of God. And then as John goes on to say, we're acting like the devil. St. Augustine said this, The devil made no man, begat no man, created no man, but whoever imitates the devil becomes a child of the devil, as if begotten of him. And John says that sin has its origin in Satan. And then in verse 8 he says, For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. This is the reference before the Garden of Eden to Isaiah 14, before Adam and Eve were created, when Satan Sometime before Adam and Eve fell, where Satan rebelled against God, Satan said, I want to be God, and was cast out of heaven. So we know that sin originated not with Adam and Eve, but with Satan himself. And whenever we sin, we are following Satan's example. Yet John didn't stop there. John said the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Did you know that Satan is the best soul winner in this world? Satan's a soul winner. Satan is a soul winner. He keeps people lost. He keeps people blind. He keeps people on the road to hell. That's what Satan does. That's part of his work. He keeps people bound in their sin. Yet Jesus came, hear this, the best news possible, he came to set us free. He came to set us free from the chains that bound us. Before we were born again, we were in bondage to sin and to Satan. But because of Christ, we who are dead in trespasses and sins are able to respond to the voice of Christ that calls to us in the midst of our tombs saying, come forth. And just as Lazarus, as we come forth, we then hear him say, loose him, loose her and let them go. And we are set free. We have freedom in him. And I know some of you might be thinking in this moment, that sounds good to talk about Satan being defeated and all that stuff, but Satan's really alive and well. And while that seems to be true, and there is a standpoint by which that is true, John's point is because of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, Satan is a defeated enemy. Meaning at the cross, at the tomb, Satan was defeated, and according to Revelation chapter 20, he will be defeated again. He is defeated. He is completely defeated. And what John wants us to see, what he wants us to know, what he wants all of us to feel is that our salvation through Jesus is more than just a rescue. 
It's not just Jesus on a rescue mission. It's all, it, it is that, but it's also a complete and total renovation by which we are changed from the inside out. If the whole purpose of Christ's first coming was to, according to verse 5, remove sin and undo the work of the devil, then it doesn't make much sense for us as Christians to continue to live in sin and play around with the devil. If Jesus came to take away that, to undo that, to, to destroy that, why can we or how can we keep living in that? The Bible says in verse 5, there's no sin in Jesus. Why? Because Jesus continually abided in or obeyed the Father. And when you and I, when we continue to abide in Christ, we will not um, go into a pattern of habitual sin. When we are abiding in Christ, yes, we will sin. Yes, we will fall short. Yes, we will slip. But we will never be able to make our home in sin. We won't be able to do it. Understand it this way. The reason the prodigal son couldn't stay in the pig pen, because he wasn't a pig. The reason he couldn't stay in the pig pen, he wasn't a pig. And the reason you and I as children won't be able to stay in sin is because we're no longer in sin. In fact, Romans 6 says you're no longer slaves of sin. You are now sons of and slaves of Christ. You've been set free. So the picture, I know that gets us. I know we don't like hearing that. But the, the picture of what John is saying is if you claim to be a Christian, you'll have evidence because you will find yourself becoming more and more like Jesus, who himself had no sin. And I know that's tough, and I know that's hard. And I know that we live in a world where we continually mess up, and we continually fall short. And in those moments, don't hear these words now, some of us need to hear these words, and, and you need to say, well, am I saved? There's no doubt about that. But others of you, you don't hear these words and let Satan begin to, to take you and, and, say, and begin to have this, this war between, well, maybe I'm not saved, or maybe all these things where it just continues on. What do we do when we find ourselves there in sin? We go back to what, first, what John tells us at the very beginning of his letter. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. The story was told that as the storm clouds of World War II were approaching, German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one more time, Brother David, he preached a sermon on November 26, 1939, that he entitled, Death is Swallowed Up in Victory. And he brought the message to a close with these words. He says, and when the darkest hour comes over us, for it will come over us, then we want to hear the voice of Jesus calling in our ear, victory is won. Death is swallowed up in victory. Take comfort and may God grant that then we will be able to say, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. It is in this faith that we want to live and we want to die. And his text on that occasion was actually 1 Corinthians 15, but his words could go right along and resonate with these verses in 1 John, which remind us that Jesus Christ appeared, first of all, to take away sin, take away our sins and destroy the work of the devil. And let me go back to that just one, one more time. Jesus came to save us. Hear this. Jesus did not come to save you from hell. He came to save you from sin. Came to save you from sin. And that means now. 
That means now, that now doesn't mean one day, one day I walk with him in heaven. That means no, right now. He came to save you from sin. And we've been saved, we've been saved from the penalty of sin. We've been saved from the power of sin. And one day, bless God, we'll be saved from the presence of sin. Never to um, have it affect us ever again. Jesus came to free us from what we were, doomed and condemned sinners. And then lastly, Jesus is coming and has shown us what we will be. So follow me here. Jesus came to make us what we weren't. Jesus came to free us from what we were. And Jesus is coming and has shown us what we will be. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, yet Jesus is not finished coming. If you're sitting here today and you're under conviction right now, I'm, I, I hate to tell you this, it's going to get worse. It's, it's going to get worse. I'm sorry to say it's not going to get better. It's going to get a little worse because when you go to the beginning of this section, John is talking as if Jesus, kind of like Jesus still hadn't come. Listen to verse 28 of chapter 2. He says, And now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. So what does John tell us? It is possible for you as a Christian to shrink in shame when Christ comes again. That's what he tells us. It's possible for you as a professing child of God to shrink back in absolute shame when Jesus comes again. And John's not looking to the past here. He's looking to the future. Then again in chapter 3, verse 2, he says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Here's the picture. Jesus came some 2,000 years ago as a baby born in a manger to destroy um, sin, to destroy the devil. But brothers and sisters, hear this. Jesus is coming back again. He is coming again any time, any day. It could be today. But this time, he's not coming back as a baby. He's coming back as a king. He won't be placed in a manger. He'll be riding a white horse. It's a, a war horse. He won't be coming to destroy the devil. And that day, he'll be coming to the one who has already destroyed the devil to claim that which belongs to him, us, and to also punish those who do not belong to him. In 1 John 3, 2, it says that we're going to see him physically see him, literally see him face to face. There's going to be a day when suddenly and instantaneously we're going to see Jesus in all of his glory. So therefore, Christian, look forward to that day more than you look forward to anything else. And let me tell you, let me, let me go ahead and preach to all of us. None of us do that. None of us do that. When was the last time you thought about his second coming? I can say yesterday or this morning because I was working on this, but how often do we do that? We think about a lot of stuff. Already this morning I've heard people talk about the Florida Georgia game, Halloween, Thanksgiving, all of Christmas, all of these things that we look forward to. And those things aren't necessarily wrong, but here's the problem. We no longer look forward to Jesus coming again. We don't look forward to it. How do I know that? Guess what Jesus said? When all the world hears of me, then I will come again. Who have you told about Jesus this week? Who have you told about him? If you're not telling people about Jesus, then you really don't want him to come again. That's what he says. 
That's what he said. That's what Jesus says. If we're not interested in telling people about Jesus, then we're really not interested in him coming again. Because he says, when all the world knows, I will come again. When all the world hears, I will come again. Listen again, we're excited about a lot of things. We dream about a lot of things. But do you long for that? Do you long for him to come again and make every wrong right? Let me tell you, it's not going to happen in 2020 when we go to the, the, the voters booth. It's not happening then. It can only happen when he comes again. Stop putting your hope in that which will always fail you. And put your hope in that which will never fail you. Can you imagine anything more wonderful than seeing Jesus? We, we have sung songs about him. We talked about him. We've studied him. We've communicated with him. But the grand climax of it all, brothers and sisters, we will see him. We will see him. Don't miss that. Missionary W. Alexander tells a story of when native um, converts came together um, to this phrase when they were translating the Bible into their language, that they laid down their pens and they said, we will never write this. That is too much to write that we will see him. Instead, let us write, we will kiss his feet. Think about that. Them saying, we, we can't write that. We'll see him? No. That's too much for us. Let us instead write, we will kiss his feet. Yet, brothers and sisters, indeed, we shall see him. We will see him. And when he appears in glory, his children are promised his likeness. We'll not just see him, we'll become like him. And what does that mean? In eternity, Christians will be morally without sin. Intellectually, we will be without falsehood, without error. Some of you think you're that way now. It'll get better for you. Physically, no more weakness, no more imperfection, no more sickness. We'll be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. But like does not mean identical to. Listen, we will never be omniscient. We will never be omnipotent. Put it a different way, we'll never be God. We'll forever understand who He is and who we are. And heaven will never, ever forget that. Though we bear his name and like, his likeness now, we still sin. Our bodies still fall apart with sickness, with, with old age. However, in his appearing, when he comes, there is a promise that he will finally put an end to all of our struggles, both with sin and with sickness. We'll finally be able to enjoy him as we were intended to enjoy him from the beginning. All of that can be true of us, should be true of us. Let me, let me put the verse on the screen one more time. Let's just walk through this one more time together. See, behold, look, ponder, think about what kind of love the Father has given, has poured upon us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Beloved, we are God's children now. Let me end this way. Are you a child of God right now? Are you his child? Have you been born again of the Spirit of God? Has there come a time in your life where the Spirit of God has met you in your sin, in your rebellion, and you knew that you needed, regardless of where you've been, you needed to go where he was um, leading you, and where he was leading you, was to Jesus. 
and you came to Jesus and you find yourself in a place where you were confessing your sin before him, your inability before him, and you recognize him to be your Savior and your Lord. Is that true of you? And then if that is true of you, are you abiding in him? Are you making your home in him? Because John says this, if you're abiding in him, you won't continually sin. And if you continually sin, it means you're not abiding in him. So are you abiding in him? Are you running from sin like Joseph did when he was confronted with sin, where he just took off running? Or are you running to sin as fast as you can? Are you eagerly awaiting the return of Jesus? Are you desiring him to return? Knowing that anything that we could think is perfect here is what we look forward to here cannot even begin to compare with what's going to be there. All of these, according to John, will be true of the child of God. Can you say in confidence today, I am a child of God? I pray that you can. Or maybe today might be the day that you will. I'm going to ask you to go ahead and stand. We're going to ask musicians to come forward, and we're going to end with a time of invitation and consecration, where we say this, whatever it is that God is telling you to do today, do it. I'm going to be up front. Maybe God is going to tell you, walk down front and ask him to pray. We have other people down front. Maybe God's going to say, walk, walk down front and talk with someone. I don't know what it is that God is telling you to do, but here's what I do know. You know. If God is speaking to your heart right now, there is no doubt about what he's telling you to do. May you have in this moment, may there be freedom for you to do just that. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you and we thank you as your word tells us that we can say, Lord, with confidence that we are your children. Not sometime in the future, we are your children right now because of our faith in Jesus Christ. God, I pray that that's true of every single person in this room. But if not, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. Today would be a day, Lord, that people in this room would turn from their sin. They would turn from trusting in themselves. They would turn from their rebellion against you. And they would come to Jesus Christ, trusting him alone as Savior and Lord. Oh, we thank you that your word tells us, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Do that today, we ask. For brothers and sisters in this room that have been running to sin and not abiding in Christ. Oh God, may you bring them to the end of that today. May they find themselves at your feet receiving the forgiveness that you give. And may they find themselves, Lord, leaving here, abiding in you and sensing your abiding in them. Finish this time. Tenderly, Lord, call people to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen.